this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. Recently, Justin Chadwick, one of our deacons, had an encounter of a lifetime as he walked in the footsteps of Jesus in the Holy Land. Today, I've asked Justin to describe his encounter to all of us so that we can have a little encounter of our own. I I just want to make clear, if we have any first-time guests or anything in the room, I'm not the pastor. I'm just, you know, we have an excellent pastor here. We were one of the best-fed churches in the Southeast. Awesome messages. Not today. You know, they they say a boxer has to train one hour for every second of a fight. I'm just telling you right now, standing up here is one hour for every minute for the message. So for those of you that think a pastor's job is a couple hours every Sunday, uh -uh. uh-uh. This is hard stuff here. Um, Before I get into it, uh, you know, the idea was is that we wanted to try to bring you back more of a a feeling or or an encounter from our trip than just a slideshow and some pictures, and we went here, and we went there, we did this, we did that. But if you'll indulge me just for a minute, I do want to share you know, some pictures of my trip. <laughs> um, there's one place that we went, I think, that everybody would put near the top of their list. And uh, that's where we got to go to the River Jordan and be baptized. And it was very, very cool. And I brought quite a few members of my family with me. I got to see my mother-in-law get baptized. And then my mom came down from Canada to join us on the trip, and she got to be baptized. Um, My wife, Joyce, was also baptized. She's the one in the back there. You can see her now, thanks to Gil. Shout out for the crank-up chair that uh, you can see her in. But we all, you know, a lot of us got to experience, you know, a second time at the, uh, being baptized. For most of us, I don't believe it was the first time. Um, so it was kind of a renewing of the faith. But the highlight of my trip was Steve gave me the honor of allowing me to baptize for the first time my 13-year-old son, Christopher. He's back there on camera one. But yeah, that was, uh, that, that, that was pretty awesome. Uh, leading up to the trip, we, we had a number of meetings where we were talking about, you know, kind of what we we're going to do, what we we're going to see. And really, for the most part, guys, to, to tell you the truth, we, we talked about COVID protocols a lot. You know, you got to do this, you got to do that, got to get this test, got to get that test, got to get your green pass and not your green pass. And fortunately for us, by the time we left, all of that was null and void. They didn't require any of that anymore. And that's probably more fortunate for the seven people that got COVID while we were there, because they'd probably still be in Israel today had they not. But um, one of the questions that came up during that time that, uh, uh, that we did discuss very briefly was, you know, is this, you know, Niagara Falls, Kitschy, Gatlinburg, uh, tourist traps everywhere you go, people selling knickknacks and keychains and t-shirts and and the answer to that is yes and no. Um, but what was made clear to us over there is that when we go there as Christians, we are not going there as tourists. 
We are on a pilgrimage. We are returning to the Holy Land. That is our place. It's where we belong. And it's a pilgrimage back to there. And yes, everywhere there is something to see, there is a, uh, something that happened. They do have a little touristy place, but really they call those over there, and what we call them here, churches. <laughs> they build a church. Something happened, there's a church for it. Um, you'll see uh, if, if a lot of people that had come back or if you got a souvenir from somebody or when you're over there, you, you see that strange-looking cross quite often. That, that, that's a cross that's kind of unique to Jerusalem. It's called the Jerusalem cross. And it's significant in that the four tiny crosses represent the four Gospels. And the reason they're in the corners is they're talking about the four Gospels being spread out to the world. And they're surrounding the one much larger cross. There's some different people that had some different meanings behind what that cross meant, the Bible in its entirety. But the one that I like the best and the one that seemed to fit the best for me was it represents the Holy Land as the fifth gospel. And that by making that pilgrimage and by going to the Holy Land, you get to see the places. But more importantly, you get to experience the people you get to experience the atmosphere, and you, you get to learn some of the customs and traditions of the Holy Land because so much of what we read about in the Bible is nuanced with those customs and those traditions. And understanding those customs and traditions help brings a lot of that scripture to light. Um, you know, the plan was, yep, we're all going to pick something. We're going to talk about it when we get back. And uh, Jeff was first, and he went last Sunday, and he did an awesome job. I don't know how many of you were here last Sunday on Caiaphas, but that, that was awesome. You know, uh, I wasn't going to go till the 24th. You know, I'm like, all right, I got a few weeks to work on this. But, you know, I watched the end of Jeff's thing, and I'm sitting over there. I got my family from Canada down because they're all here on vacation. We got all these things going on. It's a busy week. I've been busy at work because I'm trying to catch up being gone for 10 days, and I own my own business, so, you know, that's like 40 days worth of work to be biblical. Um, but, uh, you know, I Jeff finished, and I sat there, and I said, oh, thank you, God, I don't have to follow Jeff. <laughs> Wasn't like 30 seconds later, my phone buzzes. Normally, I don't check it in church, but God told me to check it. So I did, and it was Steve. Oh, by the way, Justin, uh, can you go this Sunday instead of the 24th? Well, you know, I got my, it's July 4th tomorrow. I got my family in town. They don't leave till Wednesday. Thursday's Christopher's birthday, but that's a work day, so we're not going to celebrate it. But Friday, we're going to celebrate Christopher's birthday. Saturday is Joyce's birthday, my wife's birthday. I got to catch up on all this work and squeeze in a 40-minute sermon on Sunday. All right. <laughs> I said, I'll do it. You know why? Because what I'm here to talk to you about is the first blank on our page. Our plan isn't often God's plan. You know, I wasn't planning on being here today. I was planning on sitting out there with y'all, watching somebody else talk about their trip to Israel, taking down notes and developing my message, my story that I was going to give in two weeks. <laughs> Lots of time to prepare, but that's not what God had in mind. You know, and I think that the reason he had that in mind is because he put this on my heart to talk about 
the greatest encounter of all time. You know, I'm not the type that goes into Starbucks and gets a small or a medium coffee. I'm like, give me the biggest one you got. You know, anytime you buy, you go bigger, go home. I mean, you know, small fries? No, just give me the large. If I'm not that hungry, I won't eat them all, but give me the large in case, you know? So I decided to pick the greatest encounter probably of all time. I mean, not the greatest encounter that Jesus had at his time, not the greatest encounter within 100 years. I mean, of all time. I mean, we're talking about Peter and Jesus. This is why we're here. Was there any more important relationship besides Jesus and his father than Jesus and Peter? And so that's what I'm here to talk to you about today. And uh, following the suit of, you know, it's not our plan, it's God's plan, I, I want to set some context. And in order to set this context, I, I want to give you kind of an idea. We all know these stories you know, there was a number of miracles that occurred. There was 37 recorded in the Bible. John writes at the end of his gospel that, you know, you, can't, you could fill the world with all the books and still not talk about everything Jesus has done, and he's right. But I want to talk about, about a few of these encounters that Peter was there with Jesus at the time, that Peter saw with his own eyes that he experienced, because it will help put in context where I want to get to later on if indeed my message ends up being coherent, which I'm hoping. <laughs> so the, the first one I want to talk about was, was, you know, Jesus' first recorded miracle. You know, you can see in some of the other places they may have, you know, where some of the kid, you know, the other apocryphal gospels, they talk about other stuff. But we're, we're going to talk about when uh, John, when he was in Cana. Um, we got to see what we think is Cana, we don't know. I, can't, I don't remember. But we, we went to a lot of places and pretty sure that this is what is Cana today. Of course, Cana of Jesus' time is about 20 feet underneath all of this. Um, you know, everything there has been built and rebuilt a number of times. But this is the place, and uh, we're going to go to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told them they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of the ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. The miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and disciples believed in him. So saying it right from the first, his disciples believed in him. Our guide, Fote, uh, when we were talking about this in Cana, he said that there's some people there that believe that uh, Jesus didn't turn to water to wine. He took that crushed, rat, unripe grape 
fermentation, intoxicant. He started with water, and he imbued that water with the Holy Spirit. And what he gave the master of the ceremonies was water imbued with the Holy Spirit. And the intoxicant those people felt wasn't the wine, but it was Jesus and God himself. But that was his theory. All the people there still believe it's wine, because even to this day, you know, you can buy... Cana of Galilee, red wine. <laughs> red wine, white wine, best wine you ever tasted, according to the guy at the stand there. So, you know, and that was me showing the bottle of wine. Um, we, we traveled quite a bit around the uh, Galilee region. Uh, that was the first part of our trip. We spent four days up there. Uh, beautiful area. Uh, we went to a number of different places. Uh, we got the privilege to go to one town that uh, actually Peter came from and that uh, uh, it said that Jesus spent quite a bit of time in, and that was in Capernaum. And this is the second uh, uh, miracle I decided to uh, talk about today to kind of uh, put these things into context, and we're going to go to Luke chapter 4, 31 to 36. Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and taught there in the synagogue. Every Sabbath day, or taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day, sorry. There too, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he spoke with authority. Once, when he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, cried out, shouting, Go away! Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet! Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the demon threw the man to the floor as the crowd watched. Then it came out of him without hurting him further. Amazed, the people exclaimed, What authority and power this man's words possess? Even evil spirits obey him, and they flee at his command. You know, it shows us here that even the evil spirits knew who Jesus was. Not too many people knew who Jesus was. Jesus hadn't even asked the question of his apostles yet, who do you think you are? Who do you think I am? But here it is. The demon, Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Son of God, acknowledging who Jesus is, and Jesus showing his power and his authority by casting that demon out. He had done this a couple of other times before that, but this is one of the first times that it was uh, actually uh, recorded. And here's where it's occurred. I mean, this is it. This is the temple in Capernaum. And we got to stand there. We got to feel the heat from that area, the breeze off of the Sea of Galilee as we contemplated that scripture that this is where that man was thrown out. Now, this isn't the... the we had some... some hey, those are Corinthian columns. They came a few hundred years after Jesus. Yeah, yeah we know. They, 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 the, the site's been built and rebuilt a number of times. Okay? Most sites there have been built and rebuilt a number of times. But this is the location where that synagogue in Capernaum was. And around the synagogue was the town. If we got the little picture of the town, you can see these are kind of outlines of where the houses would be. You can see it's a very small, compact town, as most of those towns were at the time. And Peter, or Jesus did something here that was very personal to Peter. He healed his mother-in-law. And we see that in Luke chapter 4. After leaving the synagogue that day, he walked right through that little area that we showed you, because that was right in front of the synagogue, the, the ruins I just showed you. So he walked right through that area. Jesus went to Simon's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. 
Standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. Well, if you go back to that picture with the little town there, you can kind of see that uh, tourist site. This is, a, this is a modern church that was built. And the, the floor of this church is actually very thick, clear plexiglass because it shows underneath it Peter's house. They know that was Peter's house. This is classified as an A site. You'll, you'll hear a number of different uh, uh, times that people might talk about Israel and they'll talk about different places and they'll classify them as an A, a B, or a C. If it's an A site, 100% that whatever it's saying occurred there, occurred there. A B site is, uh, we think it's there or it could be there. We're not exactly sure which one, but there's a pretty good chance it was one of these two. And then a C site is, well, this just kind of represents what may have occurred there at the time. This is classified as an A site. They, they, they have a very, very high confidence that this was actually Peter's house. And this was a miracle that Peter couldn't refute. You know, this, this isn't like, you know, the mother was sick with high fever. She was old. This was the mother-in-law. And she got up and cooked dinner. It wasn't like, a, you know, then two or three days later, she got up and she was okay. She was healed. This isn't a modern day, you know, if I stretch your leg out a quarter of an inch, your back won't hurt anymore. You know, praise God, he healed me. No, no, no. Peter knew that his mother-in-law was sick. He knew that it was only through divine intervention, a miracle, that she was cured. You know, Capernaum sits on the Sea of Galilee. Um, Luke chapter 5, 4 through 7. There's a number of things that happened in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but, uh, you know, if we get the picture of the boat, here's kind of a boat on the Sea of Galilee. This is not one of the boats that uh, they would have been on. This was the boat that we went on, which was really, really cool. Um, and I'll show you a picture soon of the boat that they would have been on. But let, let's talk about Luke chapter 5, 4 through 7, and about the fish catch. When he, had been, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, he's still Simon at this time, note, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. At this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filling with fish and on the verge of sinking. Think about that for a second. Peter was a fisherman. He was the son of a fisherman. He worked those whole lake, that, that, his whole life on the Sea of Galilee catching fish. He knew what it meant not to catch fish. He knew how futile it would be to cast his net on the other side of the boat. What difference would that make? But Peter was starting to understand and starting to believe a little bit about what Jesus was. And he was starting to see what that authority meant. You know, so he was willing to do that. And by listening and casting his net on the other side, he caught a multitude of fish. Remember, he's the authority on the water. Peter's the fisherman. All the, the apostles were the fishermen. They were the authorities on the water. They're fishermen, son of fishermen, grew up their whole lives on the water. Let's take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 8, 23 to 27. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. 
Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went to wake him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. A great calm. Let, let, let's do the boat. Little video there. We have a little video showing you what great calm on the Sea of Galilee is. That's, that's the Sea of Galilee in great calm. Now you can see the shoreline there. If you look to this side, you'd see the other shoreline. Okay? When we think of a sea, we think of like the Mediterranean Sea, Caribbean Sea, great expanses of water. I'm from the Great Lakes region. I mean, we got little backyard ponds that are bigger than the Sea of Galilee up there, you know? And the fishermen knew this body of water. This is where they grew up their whole lives. They've been fishing there their whole lives. And crossing over to the other side is a journey of maybe in the boat that we had that was motorized, 15 minutes you can get from one side to the other. Yet, a great storm came up. I don't know how familiar you are with bodies of water, but in order to create a great storm and great, great waves in a body of water that size, that had to have been a supernatural wind. Because I'm telling you, brother, a, a small wind's not going to push the waves big enough on that body of water to make a great wave enough to scare somebody. If you got a storm that's going to scare a generational fisherman, that's got to be a pretty big storm. And this could be a supernatural storm. See, I never would have thought that. I always thought before, okay, great storm game. I'm thinking the Mediterranean Sea, you know, yeah. You're sitting there rolling for four hours and, you know, starts to build up and five hours. I mean, one hour, you're across that water. This great storm came out of nowhere. I was down on, uh, uh, in Kenya on Lake Victoria. I was there with some African pastors. And a lot of these pastors had never seen big bodies of water before, never mind been on a boat. And the one pastor, he was sitting there and he had his arms around his knees and he was shaking and screaming the whole time we were out there. And there's maybe three, four foot waves, and you know, crashing on these waves. We've got the water spraying in on our face. Very cool experience. And the one pastor started talking about this story. And he said, now imagine the fishermen. They're the authority in the sea. They're the authority in the water. They're the ones that know this is their home. This is where they belong. Yet, what are they doing? They're waking up the carpenter. Saying, help us, please. Going to the carpenter for help, the fishermen. Because that leads us to our next blank on the page, which is Jesus the, is the authority over all. Just not all of us. But overall, he rebuked the winds and he calmed down a supernatural storm. Supernaturally created to demonstrate his power and supernaturally dissipated. Now, I want to read one more here uh, that happened on the water. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, 14, 22 to 23. When uh, immediately after this, 
Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. That's it. Well, this was Jesus walking on water. Okay, and then he came back out into the boat. We all know the story. This is probably the most captured story in paintings and such, you know, Jesus walking on the water. And, you know, we all tried that. It was really cool. When we were sitting there in our hotel, just outside of our hotel, there was this little stone dockway that had about an inch of water on top. And everybody was out there walking on the water. I wish I had the pictures of Jeff. See, if I would have had two more weeks to prepare, I would have had Jeff's picture. So he, he was walking out there saying, look at I'm walking on water, you know. But no, Jesus actually walked on the water. Okay? Jeff had this huge stone foundation underneath him holding him up. And it appeared he was walking on water if he hit the camera with the white angle because you could only see his feet with the water. You don't see the stone underneath. And I just thought that was so indicative of so many of us. You know, we, we have the appearance that we're walking on water, but it's not us. It's, it's that solid foundation we have underneath us that, that's really holding us up. But, you know, Peter, being a fisherman, growing up his whole life as a fisherman, had probably lost family members and friends in that Sea of Galilee. He knew personally people that, that, that fell out of boats and drowned and died. Yet he saw Jesus walking towards him on the water, and Jesus said, you come out too. Peter knows what's going to happen if he steps on that water. But you can see Peter was slowly starting to build up his faith. You know, he was slowly starting to believe in what Jesus was saying, enough to the point where against every nature in his body, I'm sure in his mind, everything was screaming at him, you can't do this. He stepped out of that boat. And let's give him credit. He did a couple steps before he fell. But he made that first step. After we spent a bunch of time up around the Sea of Galilee region, we, we, we moved our way down to Jerusalem. We spent uh, five nights, I believe it was, in Jerusalem and, and toured a bunch of different areas and, and places in Jerusalem. And for the most part, the places that we saw, you know, walking the Via Della Rosa, they say this is the path that Jesus would have walked on well, no, the, the path, as I said, it's 20 feet underground. Oh, no, here's where Jesus put his hand on the wall. No, that wall was 20 feet underground. But uh, we get to, did get to see one place, uh, the Bethesda Baths, that they had excavated out, and this is the actual excavation. This is the place of the Bethesda Baths. And in John chapter 5, 1 through 15, we read about when Jesus was there. It said, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda, with five covered porches, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked them, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the man said for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. 
So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. I bring this one up because um, it was kind of interesting to us over there. You know, we were, we were talking about this and we were talking about what happened. And uh, Fote uh, was, was our guide. I don't know if I told you about him earlier, but his family was one of the first 12 families to come over in the Crusades back in like the 1100s. He, he'd been there for a thousand years. He, he was trained as an engineer and his job was mosaic uh, restoration and he worked on archaeological digs, and he gave up his engineering career to be a guide. And this man knew his Bible, and he knew his stuff. And the one thing that he was trying to impress upon us, one thing he wanted us to come away from our trip to the Holy Land with, is that there is nothing in the Bible that is insignificant and that doesn't mean anything. And I'm going to show you a few examples of that today. But, but, but the one I want to talk about in this, if we, we go back to the beginning, he, you know, he talked about that the man was 38 years old. So he said, when you read something like that in Scripture and they give you some kind of a detail, you have to ask, what is the purpose of this detail? And then he asked us the question, yeah, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And so he knew he was a paralytic from birth. So this man was 38 years old. 38 years, he was paralyzed. He was trapped in his own body, and he couldn't move. And, and what's the significance of that 38 years? And he asked us a question, and we all got the answer wrong, but we thought we were right. He asked us, you know, how long did it wander in the desert? And we said, well, 40 years. He goes, well, let's, let's, let's open our Bibles. Let's go to Deuteronomy 2, 14. 38 years had passed from the time we first left Kadesh Barnea until we finally crossed the Zared Brook. By then, all the men old enough to fight in battle had died in the wilderness as the Lord vowed would happen. So there was 40 years of wandering, but there's 38 years of forced, trapped, stuck in his body, wandering before they were freed. So by pointing out that the man was 38 years old, Jesus was freeing him from the captivity of his own body just as God had freed the Israelites from the Egyptians and gave them the promised land. There is no detail in the Bible that's insignificant. That's part of that fifth cross that you don't get to see unless you experience the fifth gospel, which is the Holy Land. You might, I don't know, but I didn't. There was another man that Jesus healed while he was there. And, and they don't know exactly where this happened, but they talk about it was at, uh, I can't remember the name of the other bath, but it was in the eastern part of town. So, you know, one of the places that we uh, have here is this is the eastern gate. So I'm kind of imagining that at the time, Jesus was walking through this gate on this next one that I, that, that I, I kind of read to you when he came across this man and he healed him. They don't know for sure it was there, but... They know it was in that area of Jerusalem, down around the Eastern Gate. 
Now you say that's not much of a gate. It's all walled up. Well, it's, it's been walled up for some time. And they say that, you know, when Jesus returns, he'll pass through the eastern gate again. And that gate's going to stay walled up until our Lord and Savior comes back. Well, let's read about the blind man that, John, that uh, John tells us Jesus came across. John 9, 1 through 6. As Jesus was walking along, that's why I'm figuring it was at the gate he was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Well, is it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Now we know that's the second time that Jesus healed a blind man by doing that. So why is it significant to tell this second story? For me, it's not the curing of the blind man that's the significant. Let's go to the very first part of that passage. His disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? How certain were they and how certain are we that something's happening to a person as punishment for their sins? You know, every time something bad would happen to us, Mr. Kike would say, that's sin. But Jesus is sitting there saying, no, listen, it's not sin. Yes, this man is blind. It's a horrible thing for him. He's been blind since birth. But he was put here so that I can show you God's power right now. How is that any different than today? When that person that's needing something or that needs your help or that needs your grace or that needs whatever it is that you could offer them, why, maybe they were put there so you have the opportunity to show God's power. That's why my next fill in the blank on this was sometimes the broken are put in front of us so that we can show the power of God. That's why Jesus is talking about this here. He, he, they didn't bring this story up again to show that he could heal a blind man twice. They put it in context. This was a man blind since birth. So the disciples were confused because to them, something like this is the result of sin. This is something that if they would have sinned, then God made him blind as punishment for that sin. And if I don't sin, I'll be able to see. So therefore, the blind man's a sinner and I'm not a sinner. But this man's been blind since birth. So was it his sins? It can't be his sins. It must have been his parents' sins. So God was punishing the parents by making their child blind. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. That's not why this man was blind. This man was born blind because I want to show you something bigger. I want you to do something greater. I want you to be a part of something. And people are going to need help. And this is a man that needs help. So God put him here so you can help him. And show him God's power. Figured, you know, last time I went over, and if I cut out all my ums and ahs, oohs, 
then I'd be in at the right time. So I hope I'm doing okay, but I'm probably going to go long again. Uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 15, 32 for 39. Then Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. The disciples replied, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? They replied, seven loaves and a few small fish. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, thanked God for them, broke them into pieces, and he gave them to the disciples who distributed them to the crowd for food. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterwards the disciple picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were 4,000 men who were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. Then Jesus sent the people home, and he got into a boat, and he crossed to the region of Magadan. I'm saying that right. But they call this the healing of the 4,000. But as you saw plainly in the, in, in the script there, it's not, it was 4,000 men, and then all the women and children. And, and there's more than that. And then there's, as I said, there's 37 miracles in the Bible. But I, I picked this one to talk about because, you know, I, I just don't want to demonstrate to you what Peter got to see and what he got to experience. I, I wanted to kind of give you guys a bit of a feel for our trip, too. We got to feel and we got to experience and what is different. And, and the key word for me and, uh, that I want to get across to you today in that, because this word's used a lot in the Bible, is the word wilderness. You know, here in LJ, Georgia, we hear the word wilderness and we think of Kusawati, you know, <laughs> Fort Mountain Park or something like that. But let me show you in the Bible. That's the wilderness. Fote told us anytime they talk about the wilderness in the Bible, anytime the name wilderness is used, that's what it's to describe. You know, that wilderness goes all the way up, you know, from the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, from the, from the Dead Sea, all the way up to Jerusalem. There, there, there's just a fine line. I mean, literally, I'm talking a half a mile, you're leaving coconut trees and palm fronds, and you're into the wilderness. And this wilderness goes on and on. And that's where they were with 4,000 people, 4,000 men, women and children. I mean, the only thing you could find out there for 4,000 people is probably enough rocks. For 4,000 people, never mind enough food. As I said, the, 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 uh, uh, the wilderness borders right into Jerusalem. And uh, the border town of Jerusalem is Bethany, where our next miracle occurred. And I think we got a picture here. Um, th th this is actually, uh, Jeff used this last week. This is Caiaphas's house. These are the stairs that lead from the town of Jerusalem down to the Mount of Olives. These are the steps that Jesus would have took coming in and out of town. Just on the other side of that little ridge there is the town of Bethany. Now, Peter had seen a lot. Jesus had done a lot. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for what he knew were the final days. What he knew was, was you know, the coming crucifixion. And he got a message in those days. Let, let's go to cha John chapter 11, 1 through 7. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany, which is that 
little town there with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary and Martha who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so the Son of God will receive glory from him. So everyone must have felt pretty good there. You know, Jesus just said, hey, he's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. So even though Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Then finally, he said, let's go back to Judea. So for two more days after he got this message, they stayed there. Lazarus is sick. You should come. They're calling you to go. No, we're going to stay here for a couple more days, and then we'll go. And then we're going to walk through the wilderness to Bethany in Judea. Let's go on to the next. This is after he finally gets there and he meets up with Martha. And, he, and Jesus tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in, uh, lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Next. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people waiting with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Now, what do you think the disciples were thinking at this point? They got there. Jesus had told them, no, no, let's wait for a couple days. He's my friend. He's sick, but he's, he's not, it's not going to end in death. And they get there to find out he died. Were they starting to sense some distrust? I mean, they've seen Jesus do all these things. There hadn't been a time when Jesus was wrong yet. Is this the time? Why, you know, is this one thing that Jesus can't conquer? He can conquer the waves. He can conquer this. But, you know, what's going on with Lazarus? Let's go to the next verse. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? So they're asking the same question. Lazarus was sick. Why didn't you come and cure the sick? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Now again, the thing that we learned is there's nothing insignificant in the Bible. If it's there, it's there for a reason. Why did they say four days? Well, Jewish custom was, they, they, they weren't very good at the time on medicine. They, they were, there were sleeping sicknesses. There were other things. But four days dead is dead. Okay, one day dead, uh, you know, he still might come awake. You know, it might be this or it might be that. Two days dead, eh. but four days dead, body stinking, that's dead. And if Jesus is going to want to show something, he wants to leave little doubt. As I said, he's not, he's not moving the guy's shoe a quarter of an inch to make it look like he pulled his leg out. You know, Jesus is taking a man four days dead, stinking in the grave. And he's looking up, and Jesus responds by saying, don't tell me that you would see God's glory if you believe. So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. 
you always hear me, but I'm saying it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave's clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Jesus knows where he's going. He knows what's about to happen. Nobody else does. Here's some hope. If Jesus could do this for Lazarus, four days dead, do you think he could do it for himself? Do you think, you know, has he now demonstrated to you enough that his power is not supernatural, that it comes from God, that he's just not a man, not a charlatan, not, not, not a wizard, not, a, not, not, not one of the Pharaoh's magicians? This is somebody different doing something different? Jesus waited there for two days. He knew Lazarus was going to die, but he told them he's not going to die. But he knew that if he went back and if he just healed him, it'd just be another man being healed. If he came one day after he died, people could say, oh, well, maybe he just had the sleeping sickness and he really wasn't dead. And he just, you know, put some smelling salts under his nose and woke him up. Four days dead, stinking in the grave, coming back to life is only God. They had never seen this before. And this was him demonstrating to God. That's why he prayed to God aloud. So that they know this isn't me. It's my father. I'm doing this through him. You know, it kind of reminds me, there's a joke I heard, you know, ladies in a parking lot driving around looking for a parking spot. She can't find one. So she's, oh God, please get me a parking spot. Opens her eyes and there's a car backing out. And she says, oh, never mind, God, I found one. (laughs) You know, how many of us are like that? You know, one day dead might be a found parking spot. Four days dead? No, that's the equivalent. Oh, God, find me a parking spot. And all of a sudden, the car flies up in a hurricane and disappears, and there's this car there for you. I mean, that's what he's doing here, okay? This isn't a subtle little thing. This is four days stinking dead back to life prior to him going to Jerusalem to go through what he's going to have to go through. And Jeff did a great job last week of explaining that. We've all heard the story. We all know about the crucifixion. Uh, I I don't have time to get into that. Um, But what I do want to say is that, you know, Peter was there for all of this, guys. Peter saw all of this happen. After Jesus was crucified, he came back to Peter again, to the guys in the room. He said, I'm back. I'm not dead. Why are you looking for the dead? And again, it was after the three days, four days dead, stinking in the grave. No, he's back. Then he came back again because Thomas didn't believe, so he had to put his finger in. So even after all of this, can you imagine, after all this, I'm talking like the greatest Sunday service you've ever had. You know, the pastor gave a message that you know 100% God intended directly for you because it speaks to everything that you're going through at that time. And he just hits every nail on the head and he tells you exactly what it is to do. It's like God is talking to you personally. And then you wake up Monday morning, what do you do? Go back to work. Just another day, Sunday's over. Peter saw all of this. And what did he do? He went back to Galilee and went fishing. Went back to work, Monday morning. Didn't trust God's plan. There was no plan. It's over. 
He's gone. Yeah, he came to us a couple times, but I don't feel any different. I, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, I, I've been through his teaching for three years. I've been with him. He's told me about all these things. He's done all of these things. But I, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go back with my buddies out there and start fishing. That church I showed you at the beginning, this church, they call this the church of the primacy of Peter. This is an A site, guys, A site. You can see the shoreline with the rocks. I want to show that to you before I read this. Let's go to John 21, 4 through 11. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooked over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net still hadn't torn. There's a lot in there, guys. There's a lot in there that just, you know, you read, and you just read right past it. You know, as I said, let's go back to the picture of the shore. Okay, these are the rocks. This is the shore. This is the spot. So back then, the fishermen, you know, they, they, they didn't have, you know, fish finders and GPS and all that. You know, they just had their, their boats. And actually, I, I promised to show you the boat. And I didn't. Can, can we show the boat? I, I'm sorry. We, we got to go to the museum of the boat. And this is a first century fishing boat. This was actually found in the mud. And they had a real cool video explaining the process that they used to extract that out of the mud. Basically, they covered it with a foam and floated it out just like a boat would. But this is the only example of a first century fishing boat they found on the Sea of Galilee. So when they're talking about a boat, that's what they're talking about. Let's go back to the shore. So when they were fishing, you know, they needed some help in trying to find where the fish were. So typically, they would hire a guide. And a guide would stand on a high point at the shore and look out into the water and try to see where the fish were and say, oh, cast your net there and cast your net here. That's why they weren't surprised when someone from shore yelled, you know, cast your net on the other side. And they just thought that was their guide. But now it was Jesus. This is the spot because where they would fish would be somewhere, the best place to fish would be somewhere where there's the, the Sea of Galilee is kind of a cooler water uh, place and there's a number of hot springs around the Sea of Galilee where a hot spring comes into the water that would attract fish. There's a hot spring right behind these rocks. And actually, that spring has an outlet exactly 100 yards from shore. Said in there that they were 100 yards from shore. And 100 yards from the shoreline is the hot water spring that would attract the fish where the fishermen would be fishing. So that's exactly where they would be if they were fishing in this area. Then they hold the net aboard and they found what? 153 fish. Large fish. Well, what does that mean? You know, we just read right past that. Well... At the time, 
they thought that there were exactly 153 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And by using that number, 153, that signifies that everybody's included. You know, a lot of what's not known about the Sea of Galilee, you know, they talk many times about Jesus crossing to the other side. Does that mean just going across, you know, from one side to the other? Well, yeah, I guess it does. But, you know, on one side of the Sea of Galilee, the side where Jesus was, that was the Jewish enclave. The other side of the Sea of Galilee was Gentile. So when Jesus talks about crossing to the other side, he's not only talking about crossing over the divide of the water that, that, that is the Sea of Galilee, but he's crossing over from the Gentile, from the Jew to the Gentile. There's 153 fish. My ministry, what I'm trying to do here is not just for one fish, it's for all 153 fish. They would have known that. They would have counted the fish and it instantly would have come to them that my God, there's 150, he means everybody. He means everybody. Large fish. Why word large? Well, again, you know, you want it to be Jesus, it's got to be a miracle, right? You want it to be a miracle, it's got to be four days stinking in the grave dead to be a miracle. That side of the Sea of Galilee is known for its small fish. It's known for its, basically your sardines and your little fish. 153 large fish on that side of the Sea of Galilee. Large fish don't happen on that side of the Sea of Galilee. You know, that's a miracle. So it's just like a little exclamation mark. This is Jesus coming back to Peter. And again, you know, Peter's back here Monday morning, fishing. Not trusting in God's plan for him. Not trusting what God's asking him to do. He knows Jesus already told them many times, this is what I want you to do. Go out there and preach. And they're like, oh, no, no, I'm scared. Well, you know what? I'm scared too. You tell me on a Sunday, I got to preach the next Sunday and I got my wife's birthday, my son's birthday, July 4th. That's why I said to Steve. He says, well, you could, I'll give you, don't worry about it. You could do it in two more weeks. I said, no, then my message means nothing. You know, Steve, you preach yourself that God doesn't want our convenient time. He doesn't want our easy time. He doesn't want our surplus he doesn't want, oh, I got an extra 15 minutes. Yeah, I'll go help the church feed kids over at Tower Road. He wants our primo number one time. He wants our first, uh, our, our first and best. You know, he wants the top fruits and grains that we have. Whatever it is that we have, he wants the best from us. So my message would have zero meaning two weeks from now. It wrote itself after he asked me to do it on Sunday. I didn't write it. God inspired this whole thing. You know, this isn't from me. This is from him. This is what he wants you to get. He wants you to be part of a plan that's been going on for 2,000 years and is still active today and that you could all be a part of if you but choose to be a part of it. And he's given you that choice. You could ignore it. You know, you could sit there and say, ah, I don't want to be a part of it. It's not, it's not important to me. I don't have time for this. I only have time for that. He's giving you an opportunity to be a part of his plan. You know, he's calling you back from the Monday morning fishing out there in the boat after seeing all of this stuff and saying, I want you to be a part of something. It's hard. Imagine how hard it is for us 2,000 years later. You know, I mean, he said how hard it was for Thomas. You know, Thomas, it's going to be hard for you having seen how much harder is it going to be. He knew, he was talking about us. How much harder is it going to be for us that hasn't seen? 
You know, it probably wasn't that hard for the people uh, right after the time, you know, because it was only 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Well, we're talking 2,000 years ago in another continent, 8,000 miles away, a, to- a culture totally alien to us. But he wants us to be part of his plan. And it's tough, guys. It's tough. But you have an opportunity to do that. You have an opportunity to choose if you want to be a part of God's plan or not be a part of God's plan. Because when Peter called him back to the shoreline, he said the same thing to Peter then that he would probably say to us today. Let's go to John 21, 15 through 19. After breakfast, John asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do things as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. That brings me to the last blank on our page. God's plan is always better than our plan.